thought I was going to get in uh, chapter 3 of 1 Peter, so uh, I think I ended at a dozen, and so we'll start uh, on, chap- on, on verse 13 tonight, and uh, basically to kind of give you a little bit of a breakdown of what's happening in that chapter is the first part of that, you know, uh, the First Peter, the whole theme of First Peter is hope, and hope is the expectation of coming good. How many have know that we have hope in Jesus Christ? Amen. And in and he talks a lot about suffering and uh, going through trials and tribulations. How many have been through some trials and tribulations? And right smack dab in the middle of this book, chapter three, the beginning of chapter three, he talks about um, marriage. And how many know sometimes marriage can can feel like a trial? You shouldn't amen if your spouse is next to you. And he go he talks about wives and husbands and and the divine order that God has ordained in that and what that looks like. And then um, in verse eight, sorry, I've lost my place here. Verse eight, uh, he he shifts gears from talking about marriage to to talk about being a blessing. How many want to be a blessing? Amen. I want to be a blessing to the world around me, and that's where we got to. And uh, so we'll pick up there. Now, my goal tonight is to get all the way through chapter 4, so buckle up. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kick it in hyperdrive, so uh, hopefully we'll be able to do that. How many believe that that miracle still can happen? <laughs> you guys got more faith than I do. <laughs> uh, so, um, and if you need a subheading here in First Peter uh, chapter 3, uh, starting at verse 13 here, um, he begins to talk about suffering and suffering for righteousness' sake. And uh, that's what the early church is going through here. They're suffering because of their belief in Jesus Christ. And so uh, verse 13 says this. Do you have it back there? Man, thanks, Mackenzie, for, for filling in tonight and uh, appreciate that. Uh, verse 13 says this, chapter 3, verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? So you got to take this into context here. Peter is talking to the early church, and he's speaking to us now. Um, he's saying this, if you choose to do good in hard times, who can really harm you? How do we know sometimes it's hard to do good things when you don't feel like doing good things? When the world's falling uh, apart around you, um, you know, we are to be good. People might hurt you, but here's the thing. People may, may hurt you, but they cannot harm you. What are you talking about, Pastor? They may tie you up. Peter says this, they may tie you up to a tree, and they may ignite you and catch you on fire. Uh, They may throw you to the lions to devour you. So you got to take the context of where Peter's talking. How many are glad that we live in America and we don't have to worry about those things? Amen. Boy, you ought to be like that. I'm grateful that I don't have to worry about them coming and locking me up because I believe in Jesus Christ. And, uh, The reason that they cannot harm you is because this is what happens when you die. I like this 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 whole way of looking at things. When you die, you go to heaven, right? If you're a believer, you die, you go to heaven, you go to be with the Lord. Praise God. And those who live for heaven, uh, they have an entirely different perspective of life because they're able to take a lot more things a lot more seriously. See, if you're living on the earth, it's easy. To be, uh, if you're living for worldly things, it's easy to be miserable, right? Oh, the government's bad. Oh, this is bad. Oh, inflation's high. Oh, 
dinner was burned. Oh, you know, whatever. You have all these things to be miserable for. But here's what Jesus said. If you seek first the kingdom of God, if you live for heaven, you'll find that although people may hurt you, no one can really harm you. In the end, they, they really can't harm you. So, and I look at these, uh, these guys, these giants of the faith like Peter and the apostle Paul. And I think they had this, they had this principle nailed down. It's like, hey, you know what? You can, you can beat me. You can kill me. But if you kill me, so what? I'll be in heaven. And, and then, you know, and, and, what, and they didn't even know how to deal with Paul. You know, they, they wanted to kill him. And he's like, kill me. I'll be in heaven. And they're like, well, we don't want to kill you now. And, and we'll lock you up in jail. Well, that's great. I'll preach the gospel anyways. And so they could never get a handle on him. And I think the reason why is because he was not living for this world. He was living for heaven. And he, he knew that. Verse 14 says this. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Everyone say blessed. Matthew. 5, 11 through 12, and we'll get, uh, we may look at this verse in chapter 4 as well. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. When the world looks at Christians and they start to point their fingers and saying, you guys, you guys don't, you guys have old ways of thinking. You guys are antiquated and you're, you've got it all wrong. And they begin to point their finger. Um, um, Jesus says this. He said, blessed Blessed are you. Blessed are the people that do that. And, and Jesus says this in verse 12. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in, in heaven. Not here on earth. It's in heaven. You're storing up treasures in heaven. For they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So echo, echoing Jesus' words in Matthew, Peter says, hey, uh, be happy in suffering and in difficult persecution. So, well, why? Well, suffering, difficulty, heartache, tragedy, they all set our minds towards heaven. Our sights pivot um, towards heaven. So I want to look at this. So uh, the next part says this, have no fear of them, nor be troubled, verse 15 says, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. So in verse 12, uh, David, can you go back to verse 12 real fast for me, Mackenzie? Um, it says this, for the eyes of the Lord are, are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Does anybody know who Peter is quoting here? David. He's, he's quoting David. So here in verse, verse 12, he quotes David. And then um, in verse uh, 14, he quotes Jesus. And then looky here in verse 15, he quotes another and, and the one that he quotes here is Isaiah. So, and in this story here that Isaiah is talking about, the Assyrians are heading their way, and the king of Syria and the king of Israel ask King Ahaz, who is the king of Judah, to join them, to, to have a confederacy. And the Lord warned Ahaz not to go through uh, because of the prophet Isaiah told him, said, hey, you ought to do this. And that put King Ahaz and Judah in a tough positions. How many know sometimes when you follow the leading of the Lord, sometimes it may feel like it puts you in a tough situation, and it may seem impossible. And so they were in a tough situation. So they, not only are the Assyrians coming, but Syria and Israel were all against them. So they're kind of like standing out on, a, on an island. But look at this, Isaiah chapter 8, verse 11 through 13 says this, for the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of 
of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. Verse 13 says this, But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy, let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. In other words, don't focus on the conspiracies of what these these other leaders are trying to tell you. Don't focus on the confederacies that they're trying to create. And so interesting to me that Peter takes this little bit of nugget out of the Old Testament and brings it forth and, and to a group of people who are being targeted by the Roman Empire. Hey, it's easy to uh, get in conspiracies when you feel like you're being... Um, you know, uh, inflicted pain, and, and, you know, it's easy to say, hey, the government's out to get me, and all everyone can, can shift gears really fast. How many know that in America we do that really fast? Come on, somebody. Come on, somebody. And, and, and it's easy to say that, but Peter, knowing the word of God, looks back at the Old Testament, and he points these people that are going to go through some suffering by the Roman Empire, and he says, hey, don't put your trust in what man says. Don't try to raise up an army. But put your trust simply in God, plain and simple. And, and here, you know, it, it's, it's interesting to me because Peter would pull out this Old Testament example to illustrate and to encourage them. You know how, you, you know how you're able to do that? You got to know what the Bible says. That's what Peter does. He, he brings that out. He says, hey, don't get caught up in, in what you think is this, there's some kind of uprising here going on. Put your trust in Jesus and him alone. And, and you know, here's the thing. You, you may seem like you're outnumbered, but really, all you need is God on your side. All you need is God on your side. So look at this. Next bit of scripture says this. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for that hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect. Let me read that one more time for you guys out there. Always being prepared to make defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for that hope that is in you. Here's the second part of this. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Now as believers, listen, we are to defend our, our line of of what we believe. And the ideal here is not to give a theological position or to defend it. Rather, it's to give a simple explanation of the hope that is in you. That's it. Plain and simple. Um, and hope is what? The expectation of what? Of coming good. So the question is, when an unbeliever comes to you and says, why are you so happy? That's your opportunity to say, hey, I'm happy because I have Jesus Christ in my heart. Amen. So another good thing uh, about, uh, about hard times and persecution is they give us a chance uh, for our light to shine brightly so that uh, that would otherwise be in a dark area. You know, our light should shine bright, right? If we're believers, our light should shine bright. Um, when we go to the store, how we treat people, our light should shine bright. Uh, the other day I went to a restaurant and there was a, a, a family sitting uh, across from us. It was Sunday actually. And while we were eating there, I just watched this family and they were loud. How many know what I'm talking about? They were louder than everyone else in the restaurant, but they had a joy about them. 
And when they got up, I looked over at them, and I, I asked them a question. And, and this guy got up, and he said, I am the pastor of this church. And I said, I knew it. I could just tell, not only were you loud, you guys are probably Pentecostals, but not only are you loud, but you have a joy about you. They were laughing. And so, and so, and so Peter's telling us, hey, we, we have to know that why we have this hope within us. So we need to be ready when someone asks us, hey, I have this hope because Jesus brought me out of a dark and dying world. So um, verse 16 says this. Having a good conscience so that when you are uh, slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Verse 17. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. So it's important to live with a good conscience. Right? How many have ever done something and, and, and it bothered you and you had trouble sleeping or you had trouble until you, until you rectified the situation. I, I've been there. It's like, oh, man, I need to apologize. I said this or I, I acted this way and I should call and apologize. It seems like I do that a lot. Um, but, you know, um, it's important to have a good conscience. Why? So we, not because so we could sleep at night, night but um, without a clear conscience, um, we could speak we, with a clear conscience. We can speak boldly. Uh, when people ask us about this hope within us, you know, when they look at us and say, well, you're just this. Look at this. Titus 1.15 says this, to the pure. Okay, this is to the believers. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. So, the word defiled there in Titus speaks of a window that gets dirtier and dirtier, making things appear darker and darker. Now, you guys don't know this, but in our foyer in there, we had this big window up there, right? Everyone's seen that window. But every year around this time, for whatever reason, we have hundreds, thousands of flies that get up there. And they I don't know if it's warm up there or what. But every year I have to get up there, and don't ask me how I get up there, uh, but I have to get up there and I have to put these fly traps up. The other day there was something going on at the church, and I came here and I put up the fly traps, and within just a few minutes there were hundreds of flies on these fly traps. Like you could look from down up and you could just see them. So if you see flies out there in the foyer, swat them away, kill them, okay? Uh, we're trying to get rid of them. But what happens is those flies get on the window and they die and the window gets nasty. Now, you don't see it, but when I go up to that window, it's dingy and it's full of no telling what it is. It stinks. And I get up there with Windex and I hold my breath and I just wipe as fast as I can and try to. And if it ever looks smudgy, you know, don't point it out to me, okay? Don't point it out to me. But, but. That's what it, it, this is talking about, a clear conscience. You know, we, when we have a, a clear conscience, it's like, uh, we, we, it's like a clear window that we're able to see. And, and what a beautiful example. Um, the more I expose my mind to sin, my conscience becomes dirtier and dirtier. And then pretty soon, things that I saw clearly, oh, well, I'm okay with that, right? How many have ever uh, been in a, in a position in your life where you, where you, you did something, and the Holy Spirit convicted you, and you felt really bad about it. 
And then you kept doing that sin over and over and over. And then before too long, you don't quite feel as bad as you once did, right? Anybody know what I'm talking about? And that's what happens. Our conscience becomes clear, or it becomes uh, murky. And so the... Uh, and, and, you know, and then in our lives, certain things happen. Bible study becomes secondary and unimportant, and my heart feels heavy and dark. And then in, in 1 Timothy 4.2, it speaks of a, a seared conscience. That means one that no longer is sensitive to that which once troubled them. Have you ever been there? You know, when I find myself in those situations, you know what I, ha- you know what I, I realize really fast? I need to repent. I once felt bad about this, and now I don't feel bad about this. There's something going on within me. Hebrews 10.22 speaks of a, uh, of a poison conscience or an evil one with those who twist Scripture to justify their sins, but also to draw other people onto the same twisted line. Um, let me give you a little example here. Um, you know, a smart car like Tristan's car tells tells you when you need to get gas, right? How many have how many of your cars tell you 34 miles till empty? Some of you've been sitting there for a week. And you're just like I'm gonna keep pressing that. You, you're wa- walking in faith, right? And and what's interesting is um, if the car tells me, hey, you have so much uh, room before you you need to get gas, or so many miles you can go, and I look at the gauge. I look at the gauge, the old-fashioned gauge. How many know what I'm talking about? The old school. And, and it says half a tank, but yet the computer says 23 gallons or 23 miles till empty. You know, I'm in this position. Well, who am I going to trust? Trust. And then let's just say I'm driving, and every 30 seconds this thing tells me, hey, you need, it's dinging at me. Tell me you need to find the gas station. You need to find a place. And, and let's just say you get angry at your computer in your car, and you could pull it out. Some of you say, boy, I wish I knew how to do that. And, and you pull it out, and you shut the warning down, and you carry on until you eventually run out of gas. The warning wasn't wrong. It was the gauge that was wrong, and it's my conscience. You know, sometimes the Holy Spirit's telling us, and we hear it, we know it, but yet we're like, oh, God, I'm going to suppress this. I don't want to have to deal with this. I would have to go, you know, Lord, you're, you're convicting me. I, I don't want to go up front today. I, I know I need to lay this down. And so, too, we get seared and we, we become defiled and poisoned in our conscience and, and not hearing the warning. Stay away from there. Here's another one. Don't click that link. Come on, somebody. Here's verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us uh, to God, being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. So a good conscience is not based on what we did or didn't do, but it's based on what Jesus Christ did. Let me help you out there. It's not based on anything that you do. It's based on Jesus Christ. Uh, I can truly have a good conscience if I understand that, that the, my sins and shortcomings and fallings, they're, they're part of my history. But here's the deal. Jesus already paid for those sins. Some of you uh, allow the enemy to come in and, and bring up guilt. And, and how many, sometimes you think about things you've done in your past, you, you, you want to hang your head down, right? Like, man, I cannot believe I did that. But Jesus paid for that. He already took care of that. And, and you don't have to hold your head down because Christ took care of that. So um, no, one, no one understood this, this type of, uh, of thing uh, better than the than uh, Peter when he was writing this and 
Because Peter, you know what, he, he denied Jesus, right? He denied Jesus three times the night that Jesus was on trial. And Peter went from totally, you know, losing it and, and, and breaking the Lord's heart. And he went from that moment to being fully restored and being used by God and being part of the early church. It's amazing, right? I love that because he understood this. The reason Peter can write this book is because he understood that he made some past mistakes, but he understood that Jesus Christ paid for those past mistakes and God restored him. How many are glad that God can restore? Now look at this. I want to show you something. The same night that Peter denied Jesus, another uh, disciple betrayed Jesus, and, and that was Judas, and he didn't, and basically sold out Jesus, selling him out for 30 pieces of silver. Judas' conscience bothered him so bad that he, that he had betrayed innocent blood, and the priest uh, would not allow him uh, to, to give the money back. They, they, they wouldn't let him justify that. And, and, and the scripture says in Matthew 27, 5, that he what? Hung himself. There's a difference between a clear conscience and a dirty conscience right there. Here's the thing. Both failed Jesus on the same evening, same day. Both failed Jesus. One did great things and one did not. What's the difference? They both chose a tree. Think about this. They both chose a tree. Judas chose a tree to hang himself. But Peter chose the tree of Calvary to look at and say, hey, he paid the price for me. Not, I'm not perfect by any means. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago about the water in the desert and bitter situations and how God, the water in the desert was bitter and God told uh, Moses, hey, throw the tree into the, wa- into the water. And he threw the tree into the water and then the water became drinkable. Only God can turn bitter situations around. And only God can turn your impossible situation around. You may be going through something right now and saying, man, uh, it does not look good. Can I tell you? God can, he has, you just got to let him do it. Verse 19 says this, in which he went and proclaimed uh, to the spirits in prison uh, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. So, um Maybe this is you. You say, hey, I believe Christ died for me, but I'm always feeling guilty about my failures and my past mistakes. And you know what the devil is called? He's called the accuser of the brethren. And that's his goal. He wants to go around and point out every flaw and mistake that you've ever made. Some of you say, I think my wife's bad. No, the devil's worse. Some of your wives say, I think my husband's bad. No. But that, that's what the devil does is he points his fingers and he says, listen, you sinned. You missed it big time back there. You're not worthy to be called a child of God. You're, and he slanders us. And, and in this verse right here, it says, Jesus preached to the spirits in prison, those in hell that were wicked and diabolical, terrible, and will be released during the tribulation. So when Jesus went, uh, when he died and he went down into hell, he spoke to those very demons and those very things in that dark place and told them, hey, hey, guess what? What's up? Jesus told them that this, he said, you have no authority 
You have no power over TJ anymore. You have no power over, over Mary. You have no power over Tanya. You have no power. Jesus' words were powerful because what Jesus did completely frees me and frees you from their authority. It's through sin that, that Satan or his demons have authority in our lives. See, sin is this, rebellion against God or to miss the mark. And this is, demons um, can do whatever they want when there is sin in our lives. You know what sin does? It gives the demon a foothold in your life. It does. When you sin, you give them something to grab on. But when the blood of Jesus is applied to you, they've got nothing to grab on. The blood of Jesus eradicates the hold of sin that the enemy uses to and renders them useless. So is your conscience bothering you? Peter says, look to the cross. That's it. If your conscience, I feel guilty, look to the cross because Jesus paid it all. Maybe you're feeling condemned and the enemy has been lying to you. Jesus told the worst demons of the worst demons, you don't have any authority anymore. Look at this, verse 21 says this, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. The cross provides forgiveness, amen? How many are forgiven? Amen. Um, And here's the thing, the demons have been put on notice. They already know, they already know. And if you're still struggling with your conscience, the solution is found in the same place it was in Noah's day. When the flood washed away uh, the memory of the sinful world, that's what happened, right? So there was just the eight that got on the boat, and eight came out. But everything that was there was gone, and God made everything new in that moment. He took that which uh, Noah's family and that which was on the ark and brought things back. So, So when we are baptized, listen, the old man, now it's representation, the old man has been buried. When we go under that water, you know what? It's significant because it's like I am laying this old man down like Jesus going into the grave and coming back up. And how many can say I'm coming back new and changed and I'm telling the world, hey, God has set me free and I am free. Amen? Amen. I love that. So, um, uh the world changed after the evil days of Noah's, and when the flood waters left, and, and I need to explain this. Listen to me. Hear me out. Baptism does not save, but it represents the washing away of our sins, and it's a public, it's a public confession to the world. Hey, God has saved me. Jesus Christ has come into my life, and Jesus went down to the tomb, and he came back victorious and resurrected. So are you and I. Amen. I like this last little bit of this verse. With angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Angels and authorities and powers refers to uh, um, demons, and they cannot rebel against Jesus. They cannot contradict Jesus. Did you know that? And they must submit to Jesus because they were rendered ineffective by Jesus. Let me give you a verse. Matthew 28, 18 says this. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority, everyone say all authority. That's not some authority, that's all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. There's nothing that the devil can do 
to stop you when you have the blood of Jesus Christ applied to you. Amen? Go with me here now to uh, chapter 4. Boy, I, I, well, we'll see what we can do here. Um, we, so we talked about a clear conscience there at the end of chapter 3. And, um, um, and so we're moving, moving forward here, and we're going to talk about, uh, you know, suffering. And, and uh, how many could say this, that, that suffering brings, brings out the hope of Jesus in your life? Amen. And so I want to look at this. So if you need a subheading here in chapter 4, verse 1. There's seven things I want to try to pull out of this. I'm going to try to do it. I'm going to try to do this as fast as I can. Number one, and if you need subheading, stewards of God's grace, verse four or verse one, chapter four says this: Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. So Peter's telling this group, "Hey, tough times are coming." And that's what he's saying. Therefore, arm yourselves with clear thinking. We talked about having a clear conscience. Now let's talk about clear thinking here. Philippians 2.5 says this. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Jesus Christ. Uh, I like the NLT actually says, you are to have Christ attitude. Whew. Some of you need Christ attitude, right? Right now in the middle of shopping, busy shopping season and parking lots, getting into, how many know you need Christ attitude right now? And he goes on and, and he gives seven benefits for suffering. So um, uh, let, let's look at this. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. That's interesting to me. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Verse 2, so as to live for the rest of time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality. Everyone say sensuality. Passions. Everyone say passions. Drunkenness. Everyone say drunkenness. Orgies. Everyone say orgies. Drinking parties. Everyone say drinking parties. And lawless idolatry. That's a pretty hefty list right there, isn't it? When we look at that list. So here's what he's saying. When you, when you go through tough times, you got to realize. Here's point number one right here. Number one. First, that suffering loosens sin's grip on us. You say, what do you mean by that? Are you saying that that saves me? No, I'm not saying that. No, stick with me here. I'm going to explain something to you. Uh, and, and you say, hey, what do you mean by that? I'm glad you asked. It goes perfectly right with what I'm about to tell you. That when you go through suffering, listen to me, listen to me. When you go through suffering, you no longer give in to the lust of the flesh. When you go through suffering, things that used to be fun to you, guess what, are no longer fun to you. I'll give you a good example here in a minute. You no longer succumb to sin with the same ease or the same vulnerability you experienced previously. Anybody ever been there? Why? I'll give you an example. Now, imagine there's a guy, and he has a very high tendency um, to, to, to drink and to get drunk, and he's the life of a party weekend after weekend after weekend after weekend. And he's the guy that when he shows up to the party, the party begins. And he's the one who's supplying all the alcohol and, and all the celebration and all that's going on. Now some time passes as he's living. Now imagine this, that he has a toddler and a daughter. And while his 
daughter is playing one day. They lose sight of her, and she goes out and gets in the road, and a drunk driver hits her. He finds himself despising the one thing that once he thought was good. See, what happens when we go through trials, we go through situations, we look at things and think, is this really important to me? Ask someone who is a cancer survivor. Things that you thought were really important, you get to the other side of that cancer and you're just like, you know what, those things don't hold value at all. And so that's what suffering does. That's what trials do. The ugliness of sin is, is seen when it begins to touch your life. Sin is fun for seasons, what Scripture says. It's fun for a while. It's good. But sin always leads to death. The wages of sin is death. Christ paid that price. But if you keep sinning and sinning and sinning, sin is going to come take what it, what it does. That's why Peter says, if you've suffered in the flesh, either due to your own sin or by the sin of, of the hands of another, you see the result of sin and realize that rather than being something to wink at or, or chuckle at, sin really stinks. It never leads to, to good. It kills. It destroys. And so suffering helps us to want to walk away from sin that we once thought was cute or fun. You know what, I'm a little bit older now in my life, and things that I thought were cute and fun when I was 19 and 20 years old, guess what, I know that they have, they're detrimental. Look at this, verse, verse 4 says this, with respect to this, they are surprised when you uh, do not join them in the same f uh, flood or debauchery, and, and they mal malign you, so you should... Uh, you should look at life more soberly is what, what Peter's saying here. So here's number two. Secondly, suffering causes others to see you differently. When you're going through a trial, people are watching you. Did you know that? When you're going through a tough time, people are watching you, whether you realize it or you don't realize. How are they going to respond to this? First Peter 2.9, it says this, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So um, I'll, I'll just say this. Light and darkness don't mix. Light drives out darkness. Darkness only exists when light is not present. So if you have the light of Jesus in you, you ought to shine bright in this world. So darkness is the absence of light. So, uh, I, you know, I, I was thinking about this. When I was young, I don't know, maybe 18, 19 years old, I was working for a company, and uh, I, had, I was like a, a roustabout, and I was working in a, in a yard of this trucking company. I was busting tires, greasing trucks, and, man, can you even imagine me doing that? But I did that for years, and, and I mean, I, I did that for, for a long time. And when I first started working there, there was a guy, a welder that was working there um, doing a job for us. And he was a really, really nice guy. And he's like, hey, young man, come help me. You know, so I was helping him do something one day, whatever. And while we're doing that, and, and he was just really, really kind to me. And, and uh, we, he said, let me take you to lunch one day. I said, absolutely. I never turned down a lunch date, all right. I said, absolutely. And so we, I hop in the truck with him, and he gets a phone call. And he's on the phone with someone. I don't know who he's talking to. And he's like, and he starts talking in 
about me being in the car. He said, I'm taking this guy to lunch or whatever, blah, 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 blah. And they start asking questions. And he goes, you know, he's young. He's like 18, 19 years old. And he's, he's really nice. He doesn't cuss. He doesn't tell bad jokes. And he's just like different than any other person that out of 18, 19-year-old that I've ever met before. And I was sitting over there going, yeah. That's being a light right there in a dark world. Be different. Show the world that you're saved, not because you can say that you're a Christian, but because you want to live it out every day. Suffering causes others to see you differently. They look at you and say, hmm, there's something different about that person. I don't, I don't understand why they have hope. I don't understand why they have, things don't look good for them, but they still are happy. Hmm. I don't know what that is, but I need to get a hold of it. Verse 5 says this, but they will give account to whom he is ready to judge the living and the dead. So people will continue to sin, will stand before the Lord one day. Um, he's not saying this in condemnation, but rather out of compassion, for he realizes that these people are in grave danger. How many know that one day you're going you're gonna to stand before the Lord? And he's going to hold you accountable. He's going to say, hey, you did this. But then Jesus' blood applied. Jesus says, hey, hey, my blood, my blood's applied. Uh, it will be Jesus' blood that will keep you out of judgment. Verse 6 says this, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit of the way God does. So in addition in, uh, to addition to loosening the sense grip up on us, and causing others to look at us different is what suffering does. Thirdly, is suffering places us in good company. How many like good company? How many like to be around people you like? How many like to be around people you don't like? Man, you need to pray about that. <laughs> you know, it's interesting, this verse, some, some uh, let's just call it for what they are. Some cults use this verse to say that when someone dies, they will have another chance to accept the gospel. It's not what, what Peter is saying. Looking at the context here, it's easy to see that Peter is talking about those who suffered to the point of death and are now living in heaven is what he's saying. So, And I, I use this verse uh, in chapter 3, Matthew 5, 11, and 12. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all, utter all kinds of evil against you. This is Jesus, Matthew chapter 5. Uh, falsely on my account, verse 12, rejoice and be glad for your reward is in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So why, why is all that important? Here's the thing. When you are drawn into situations and you feel persecuted, you're in good company. Let me tell you why. You're in company with people like Ezekiel, people like Jeremiah, people like Isaiah, people like Hosea, the ones who went before us and stood the test of time. Other parts of the world right now, people are being martyred uh, because of their belief in Jesus. I saw an article um, this week of a pastor in Africa who was brutally murdered. Brutally murdered. And so, you know, uh, and, you know our persecution here in America, pretty light in comparison to around the world. Persecution uh, can mean death. It can, mean, it can also mean rejection. By people. People can reject you. Or let me give you a modern word canceled. Right? We are rejecting what you're saying. It can mean those things. So Peter says, hey, cheer up when when you when you know you're in that company because you're you're in good company here. 
you're standing with Paul, you're standing with Peter, you're standing with all these prophets. You know, I say this a lot, and I, my dad always said this, any dead fish can float downstream, but it takes a live one to go against the stream. And, and, and I, I mean, it's the truth. And in this world right now, I could float with culture, and it could take me wherever to the cesspool that it's going, but I choose to be that fish that's going upstream saying, hey, God, I'm going counterculture. I'm going where you are going. Verse 7 says this, to the end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Ver, uh, four, right here, number four, suffering keeps us focused on eternity. Amen? I love that. I find that when I'm going through a difficult time, my eyes shift towards heavenly things. The things that I was super focused on here on earth, they're not as important. I, I gave you some great, great references to that, you know. Um, when we go through trials, we, we shift towards an eternal reward. Um, good times often make us focus on, on the earth and now, right? When things are all hunky-dory, oh, it's okay. Everything's good. No one cares. No worries. And spiritually, uh, we become indifferent and set really in our ways. But then let a trial happen in your life, and guess what? What time's church start? I'll be there, right? Oh, I, I'll give you a good example. I remember some of you, some of you probably can remember this. After 9-11, oh, man, that Sunday after 9-11, Every church in America was full. What's going on? What's going on? Everyone was scared to death. Oh, I begin to think about think about these things. And so, uh, you know, we, we focus, trials make us focus on what's important. You know, this week it's been an interesting week. Um, I, a, a teacher, one of my favorite teachers in high school passed away uh, this week unexpectedly. And, and then, uh, you know, today I found out one of my classmates passed away unexpectedly. And, I, and I, you know what? That made me stop and think, you know what? I'm not getting any younger. And, I, I, and so I, I begin to think, you know, my perspective needs to be. If my classmate, which is the same age as me, passes away, who knows if I'm giving tomorrow? I don't know that. You don't know that. You don't know. So I, I've got to keep my eyes on heaven. So uh, it's when tough times come, the body hurts, that the heart breaks, or the wallet is empty. Everyone said, amen, I've been there. That I've got my eyes on e eternity. Verse 8, above all, keep loving one another. I want to let your neighbor say, love one another. Earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Whoop, yeah, I love that verse. Uh, verse 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Mm, 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 mm. Oh, come on, husbands. This is a good time for you to love on your wife when, when she says, can you help me do a little bit of housework without grumbling? Oh, come on, somebody. Verse 10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. 11, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever. Amen. I like how, how Peter, he says, go along here. He's like, I'm going to go ahead and amen myself right here because this is a good point. Number five right here. Suffering frees us to, part part uh, to participate in ministry. It's the next one. Number five. 
Suffering frees us to participate in ministry. Without, with persecution growing and heightening, Peter, you know, he's, he's leading here, and his readers uh, then would have been scattering and fleeing to try to survive the persecution. That's what they would have been doing. They would have been doing it. And, and all were called and are still called to love one another fervently. Doesn't ever change. We're to love one another fervently, especially in the days of difficulty. And that's not always easily done. Sometimes I want to love people with my hands. Right? Some of you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> and one thing we learned, I tell you what, one thing I learned in the pandemic is that we didn't love each other as much as we said we did or acted like we did. It, it, it definitely showed our, our blaring, blaring holes. So much of, uh, of, of, of our time is absorbed with stuff. So next part of this verse says, um, you, know, it, you know, we're talking about just things. When my material, my emotional, or my relational stuff is taken away, I find something that I'm free um, and I'm free to share with and, and care with others in ways that I haven't been previously. So when certain things get out of my life, it frees me. Like, what, what are you saying? Verse 11 says, be good stewards of your giftings. Everyone say giftings. This is what it says. I'll just, I'll, I'll break this down. You can't speak for the Lord without the Lord. I can't get up here and speak for the Lord without the Lord. You know what? I am nothing without him. I am nothing without him. Now, so here's the next portion. Those who serve, it's not your own power, but it's the strength that God supplies you. So what does that tell me? There's someone who's an oracle, someone who speaks for the Lord, and then somebody who serves for the Lord. The Lord gives you the power. You, here's, the, here's the same thing. Both of these people, whether they're speaking or whether they're serving in the church, need the Lord. That's it, plain and simple. It's by the Lord's strength that you're able to do. Um, my job is, is simply this. In either scenario, whether I'm, uh, I'm speaking and I, I'm up here, or I'm prophesying or I'm giving a message or I'm, I'm giving wisdom, God gives, gives us strength to fulfill his mission. But here's the thing. My job is simply this. Submit to what he wants for me. And your job when you serve and when you get and you're doing things for the kingdom is to simply submit to what God wants for you and what he has for you. Here's, here's, here's another verse 12 says this. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon uh, to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Why? Now, how many have ever said why, Lord, or why me, Lord, or why not me, Lord, <laughs> Right? Why are these fiery trials coming at me? The, the real question that we should be asking here is, why not? Why shouldn't these trials be coming at me? Did you ever stop and think about that? Why, why shouldn't they be coming at me? See, if suffering loses, loses sin's grip on us and causes others to see us differently, it places us in good company, it keeps us focused on, etern uh, on eternity, it frees us to participate in ministry, why wouldn't we want to embrace it and say, hey, this is just part of the growth? Bring it on, right? Some of you are like, man, you're, you sound crazy, Pastor. You know why I can say that? Because I, don't, I can't do it on my own, but I can trust the Lord's process in this. And every trial and every situation that I go to, guess what? He is working on me. Oh, you're getting there, buddy. Little bit by little bit, you're getting a little bit better here. 
I'm not, hey, I haven't made it. I'm not even close to making it. But every day I get up and say, God, you know, how many remember that old song in the 80s? He's still working on me. Oh, man. He's still working on me. Amen. Every day, every day I get up, God, he's just like, Lord, just continue to just work on me. Knock the rough edges off of me. Smooth out what needs to be smooth. Make right what needs to be made right in my heart, Lord. And help me to look at trials, not as a negative, but, hey, this is something that when I get on the other side of this, I'm going to have a great testimony. And God's going to, I'm, I'm going to be able to show people's love, uh, show people the love of, that Christ gave me. Look at this, verse 13. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Verse 14. If you are ins insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and God rest upon you. Uh, number six right here, sixth one. Suffering allows us to experience glory. Suffering allows us to experience glory. Um, Jesus gave us a wonderful illustration concerning suffering when he reminded us that after a woman endures pain and suffering to give birth, you know, it, it's amazing. I'll never forget my wife going through labor. I can relate to all that pain that she went through. I, 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 I mean, I did my best. She squeezed my hand for hours, it felt like. Um, but it, and, and, and she was in pain, and she was wincing. She's not here tonight, but I can talk about her. And she was wincing. But when that baby came, all that pain, all that that she had just went through didn't matter. Her emotions took over, and she saw that beautiful baby, except Wyatt. I'm just kidding. And she saw that, that our beautiful babies, and she smiled, and tears began to come down her cheeks. And, and I looked at her, and I thought, how in the world did he create this beautiful child? And, and you know, and we look at that, but the pain and the agony before the baby is born, it, it doesn't even compare to the glory after. Most of you women in here who have had babies, you probably remember the pain of labor. But guess what? Now you look at your kids and you're like, <laughs> that's a good kid right there. That's a smart kid. They take after me, not their dad, right? That's a good-looking kid. They take after me, not their dad, right? But here's the thing. The same baby that causes pain brings joy. Now, now Trista, when she had Novak, she had no meds because she came so fast. The same baby that caused pain, and I remember hearing her scream in that room, Novak brings joy. He makes us laugh, and he still makes us laugh. And in and, and just a few minutes, it went from pain to joy. And God can work your situation just like that. See, when we have those situations, man, these are labor pains. This is tough. God, why am I going through this? And God says, and it's birth. And you're like, whoo. I didn't understand why they were giving me such a hard time on my job, but then they let me go, and then I got a new job, and I got a pay increase, labor pains, the joy. See, a lot of people will say, hey, listen, listen to heartache and, and setback or difficulty, but this is, this is causing pain and agony. But can I tell you this? It will bring you joy. Watch and see. Look at this. Verse 15. But let none of your let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. This is an interesting to me. The King James Version actually says where meddler is, it says a busybody. I think it's interesting that Peter puts a busybody next to a murderer. 
Because I feel like that those are two different scopes of people. But he puts them right next to each other. Something that makes me stop and think, why would you put a busybody next to, to a murderer? I, I don't understand. But look at this, verse 16. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, the, the word, um, if anyone suffers as a Christian. So the word Christian only appears three times in the Bible. Did you know that? Three times. This is one of them right here. Um, it, it's twice in the book of Acts, Acts 11, 26, and, and chapter 26 and 28, and, and once here. Christian, the meaning is this, and it was, a, uh, it was originally a put down. This is what the Romans would say about Christians. Oh, you're a Christ follower. They would say, you, a Christian meant this. You are a little Christ. It was a put down. And the early church said, oh, okay, you want to call me a little Christ? That's okay. I'll just wear that. And, and what the world intended to mock has become what we are today. I am, I am a Christ follower. I'm doing my best. I'm not perfect, but I'm doing my best to, to be like him. And so look at this. Uh, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God uh, in that name. So if we're suffering, our attitude should be thank you. Lord, I, I've been found worthy to suffer. Oh, when's the last time you did that? Going through something. God, thank you for this trial right now. Thank you, Lord, for putting this person in front of me right now in this traffic that is driving me crazy. Uh, I'm in good company. You're, you're, you're freeing me from the sins that used to strangle me. My, my vision is focused on eternity. You know, we live in America, and we, we truly don't suffer, you know, not even, not even close to what some of the other places in the world in the underground church in, in, in China. People are, are, are found guilty of loving Christ and thrown into prison. Or in Iran, where they're maybe even killed and, and taken that. So, uh, but, we, but we need to learn this attitude because we're, we're in, in a given moment it can change. Like Rome changed overnight, the winds could shift, and we might become targets because we are uh, believers in Christ. I don't know about you, I'm going to live to glorify God, amen, um, in the good times and in suffering. Um, may I always glorify his name. Verse 17, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. So this judgment here in this verse is, is not from God. Peter is discerning the situation here as he watches uh, how bizarre Nero is and what's going on with Rome. He sees the winds changing. He's like, something's about to happen. How many have ever felt that in your heart? There's just something, there's a shift going on. You know in your heart something's not right. And society's beginning to change. And 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 so he, he continues. So the judgment is not from God. Remember, the judgment uh, we deserved was poured out on Christ. Right? The wages of sin is death. Christ paid that price. Guess what? Now we're free. So, so judgment, any judgment, it comes. It, it, it is Satan who wars against the church. It's what he does. Now, Satan comes in and makes you uh, talk about this person or want to fight with this person. And Satan, the devil, can use all kinds of things. You know the devil can use media? Come on, somebody. You know the devil can use governments? Come on, somebody. You know the devil can use key figures in society? Uh, to war against this, the church, can I tell you something? You ought to stand strong. Keep in mind, it, it's right in the suffering. So look at this. And if, and if it begins with us, uh, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Um, I'd say the world, I, I say this. I, I think the world's in a worse place 
than I've ever seen in my lifetime. Who would agree with, with me on that statement? How many would say that it's worse? Some of you lived in the 60s say, no, it was way worse back then. I don't know. You, but I feel like the world's in, in, a, in a worse place than it's ever been. And if you think it's bad now, just wait until you see uh, how God judges a Christ-rejecting world through the tribulation. If you think it's bad now, you just wait and see till, the, till we're out of here. Oh, man, it can be hard being a Christian. But think about this. If it's, if it's hard to be a Christian, it's even going to be harder to be a pagan or to be a, a sinner. The difference as a Christian is my reward will be in heaven. The sinner will endure heartache here on this earth only to gain hell. How many can say, hey, life's hard? It's just the way it is. Sometimes it, it's just hard for everybody. I, you're, not, you're not immune to it. I'm not immune to it. Sometimes I feel like I'm being picked on. You're not being singled out. It's just life sometimes. Even though it's tough and hard sometimes, sometimes we have problems, but we have to uh, uh, access to the problem solver. Amen? How many could say that? How many know that God is a mind regulator? God is a problem solver. So you might be struggling but you have access to the, to the God who can change your scenario and your situation. Amen. First uh, Peter 5, 7 says this, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. That's what we're supposed to do. Give it to the Lord. Everyone say give it to the Lord. Verse 18, I promise we're almost done. And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Um, it's by grace that we've been saved, right? Um, but here's the thing, that's not looking good for the ungodly or the, or the sinner. So Matthew chapter 19, verse 24 through 26 says this. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. How many have ever heard this reference before? Verse 25, when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? Verse 26, but Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. This is a very potent little bit of scripture. Some say that Jesus is using hyperbole here to emphasize his point. Since camels were, were the largest animal uh, at the time in Israel, he, he, had, um, he had done this before when he talked about, hey, swallowing a camel. He had also said, hey, when you have a plank in your eye, when you're looking at the speck, so that's hyperbole, using something that's extreme. Others say it was, um, uh, many scholars believe that this was a security gate at night that camels had to crouch to get through. Uh, since the main gates were closed where they would basically have to just hunker down and, and squeeze through the best that they could. And the camel would have to dump everything off to fit through the eye of the needle. So, you know, whatever your reference and, you know, you look at this. But but the rich, here's the, what Jesus is getting at. The rich were blessed. And maybe Jesus is saying this. Don't get your tr your priorities twisted. That's what, what he's saying simply. Um, the rich were considered to be especially blessed at this time. And the idea is that the rich... Uh, you know, uh, the, the ideal is uh, know that the rich can't be saved. The ideal is that no man can be saved. It's impossible. By your works, it is impossible. I don't care if you're rich, poor, it doesn't matter. It's only through Jesus Christ and that all things are possible. It's only through him that you are able to be saved. Amen? Verse 19 right here. We're, we're done. I, I'm, I'm telling you, we're right here. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Lastly and finally, suffering reminds us to faithfully commit our souls 
unto our Creator. Um, of all the titles, and I want you to think about this, of all the titles that Peter could have used concerning suffering, and he could have given any kind of name for the Lord, but he chose Creator. Think about that for a minute. He chose Creator. Why? God is the creator of everything, including the situation in which you are suffering. Did you know that? <laughs> Nothing can happen that God doesn't allow. So he's the creator of the person to whom you are married. Some of you say, oh, Lord, you could have did just a smidge better on that, right? Or the person to whom you work or your neighbor to whom you live by. He's the creator of every situation. You know, when we lived in California, we had... In our yard, every night snails would come out, um, and they would come out on the sidewalks. And sometimes I would go outside barefoot. Not very often will you ever see me barefoot, but I would go out barefoot to let the dog in or whatever. And in the process of walking out on the sidewalk, I would step on one of them snails. Have you ever stepped on a snail with no shoes on? It's disgusting. It is gross. And and, and I would lift up my foot. I would hear a crunch because I usually had shells. It would be like, ooh. I would see it all smudged on, and I would wipe it off on the side of the house like every good husband would do, right? We have stucco houses out there. That's why, stucco houses. And so, um, you know, but when I think about that, that, you know, that illustration right there, God could have made me a slug. God could have made me a snail that somebody could have come out and stepped on. But no, 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 the creator of the universe decided to make me in his image and to make you in his image. And you know what that tells me? You have value and that God loves you and that God cares about you. And, and this is what we are to do. Because of that, and man, things may be challenging around you. I am to trust him with all of me because he's the creator. Uh, you know, we like to compartmentalize these things, but trusting God is in me. My, my situation and in my suffering. So may we remember to learn to embrace suffering. Everyone say embrace suffering. Right here. I'm going to give you these quick, fast, firing seven things right here. May we begin to understand that it's truly, uh, that suffering truly loosens the sin, sin's grip on us personally. Number two, causes others to see us differently. Number three, places us in good company. We're in company with the prophets and those who have went before us. Keeps us focused on eternity. It gives me an eternal perspective. Number five, frees us to participate in ministry. Number six, allows us to experience glory. Amen. And reminds us, number seven, reminds us to commit our souls to our creator faithfully. Amen.